Hello and welcome to Pod Bless Canada. My name is Ken Coates. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald Laurie Institute. And we're here today with Linda Nazareth. Linda is the author of a book called Work is Not a Place, Our Lives and Our Organizations in the Post-Jobs Economy. This recently released book challenges very fundamental assumptions about the nature and the meaning of work and the organizations that we use to sort of mobilize our, our energies and our talents for the benefit of financial benefits and the veteran of the world as a whole. Linda, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Ken. So let me start with a big question, if you don't mind. The very end of your title, the post-jobs economy, that's an attention getter. Tell me what you mean by that. I think the reality, Ken, is that many of us no longer go to work in one place, have one job, and think about employment as being a long-term thing. If you look at what's happened in North America over the last decade, a lot of the job growth has not been in jobs at all. It has been work growth. So I'm trying to change that conversation, say, let's not talk about jobs so much. Let's talk about income. Let's talk about work. Let's talk about where we're employed for the day. Uh, but let's not necessarily talk about a concept that you know historically hasn't been the norm, uh, but has been the norm for about 100 years, and we have come to take for granted. So I'm really intrigued by how you got the idea for this book. I, I understand what you're saying, that, that work doesn't look like it used to work. Uh, many of our parents grew up with jobs that they started right out of university or even out of high school. They maintained those jobs for their entire lives, retired with a nice pension at the age of 65. Um, you're describing a different world. So where does this idea come from? What, what is it your personal experience or observations of society at large? You know, it, it's a lot of things, Ken. I mean, personally, I've had a lot of different chances. I want to say a lot of opportunities to do different things. I started with a very conventional path. I started working in government. I went to Bay Street, was a senior economist at a bank and did that for a long time. And then at some point I decided I wanted to try something different before it got too late. And I went to broadcasting, which is very unusual for an economist. I was with uh, BNN and on air every day looking at a new industry. And as I did that, I had a chance to do other things, to write, to speak to audiences when I was out talking to audiences, I found that one thing that was universal is people are concerned about the future of work. They're concerned for their kids. They're concerned for themselves, concerned about automation. There's just a lot of things there that I wanted to explore. So I had this background in demographics. I had my own experience and I thought, this is where I'd like to specialize. For the past few years, I have been speaking on lots of topics, the economy and the big picture and demographics. But the thing that gets my attention, gets audiences' attention, really is the future of work. And I'm glad that I was able to explore it with the book. Yeah, I found that really interesting because, you know, you do talk about automation a bit, but that's not the the main focus of what you're, what you're writing about, is it? No, I mean, automation is nothing really new. We've had it forever. We have automated processes ever since the wheel came around. And yet we've worried about it forever. Keynes wrote about this in the 1930s. He talked about technological unemployment. It never really happened. Now, there, I think there's an argument to be made that it, that it is somewhat different this time, that this is the fourth industrial revolution, that things are moving more quickly, that some people will be displaced. But I don't think it'll be as cut and dried as, as we think it will be, as it's sometimes portrayed as being. I don't think we're going to have out-and-out unemployment. I do think automation will change what we need human beings to do and change the demand for our skills. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that once we get robots to do some of the things they can do, 
uh, we can put our time into more productive things and hopefully at the end of it, have a stronger economy where people are using high level skills. Now, the problem obviously is the transition. How do we get from here to there? And how many people might be hurt in the process? Because that is the last thing we want. You know, we've seen this happen before. We've seen disruptions make people unhappy, uh, affect their incomes, cause social unrest, political unrest. And clearly, we want to get ahead of that and make sure that that doesn't happen this time around. So it's a discussion that needs to happen, but it is not an automation is the end of the world discussion. So let me ask a slightly different question then, because if automation isn't the end of the world, and that's that sort of it's either going to be Chinese competition that's the end of the world, or Indian competition, or or, or technology that people sort of always trying to find a, a boogeyman or whatever. But I'm really interested in your phrase about the. That the high-level skills, because I think that's really one of the core issues. What does the future hold for people who do not have high-order skills? You know, the skills that we need are not necessarily really specific skills. If you look at what the World Economic Federation has identified as the most important skills, some of them are really, we used to call soft skills, I think maybe we need a better term for it, but curiosity, initiative, persistence, adaptability, for sure, uh, there are things like scientific literacy and numeracy and financial literacy, but we can help people learn those. But I think we need to really emphasize that we need people that have creativity, that have good communication skills, that have good collaboration skills. It was fascinating to me that Silicon Valley is trying to retain people now. And one of the things they're trying, apparently, is being nicer. Oh my goodness, how earth shattering that you have to be nicer to your employers, employees, if you want them to stick around. I think we're coming to the realization that you need more than just the hardest level skills. Now, in terms of the people who don't have them, I think that is a really crucial point. And there's two things to think about here. One is the fact that we do need to teach things like financial literacy, and we're really bad at that. If we're talking about a post-jobs economy, people might be coming in and out of the labor force, making a fair amount of money for six months and then making no money for the next six months. We need to teach people how to deal with this income volatility, which even people with a lot of education do not have. So there's definitely things to teach there. We need to teach people the skills that the labor market needs. Obviously, there's still going to be need for STEM workers, for workers with financial skills. We need to train people for that. For the people who are lacking in skills that the labor market wants, I think we need to really get our minds around that and not necessarily teach actual hard skills, but keep people continuously educated, make people not afraid of education, make people not afraid of change and coming in and out. I, I think a lot of times policy is centered around, let's get the Amazon plant and let's get everyone a job and let's hope they can stay there for 30 or 40 or 50 years. I think we need to think wider than that. So, so if I could just ask a somewhat different question, how do you think Canada is going to do in this post-jobs economy? Um, we're a resource-based uh, economy to a very substantial extent, particularly in Western Canada. Outside the major cities, we've been sort of an industrial, small town, small business kind of orientation oriented kind of place. Uh, when you canvass the world as a whole, how does Canada look? Well, it's interesting that we just had this new study from the McKinsey Global Institute. They looked at superstar cities in the world, and you know how many were in Canada? Unfortunately, none. 
Even in the U.S., it was only 11, which makes us, and that's out of 50. So it reminds us that this is a global world we're talking about. We talk about who the winners and who's pulling ahead, not necessarily within Canada, not even necessarily within the United States. That does not mean there's no opportunities for us, but it's uh, it's a world where we have to think wider. Now, you mentioned Western Canada. I think Western Canada has been a really fascinating case study. Before we had the oil price collapse, and remember the days when oil was $100 and people were making projections about profits forever, uh, we had a lot of people employed. Then oil went down to a really low number, I don't know, 30-something dollars, and we had companies rethinking how they got things done. They got much more in tune with automation. Uh, They found ways to get things done with a lot less people than they had in the past. And even when the price went up, we didn't go back to necessarily hiring the same people. I think that's a reality that we're going to see in a lot of places. And again, not necessarily the worst thing if we end up finding ways for people to make money that don't involve those same jobs, if we find ways to uh, to let people explore other things. But again, it's a transition issue. That's a, that's a really good point, actually. I remember following the oil and gas sector quite closely, and essentially the workforce has declined, even, even taking into account the sort of overall uh, despair in the sector, um, about 30% in terms of the number of employees needed to produce the oil and gas that's actually produced. Um, and it is raising great concerns about this. Let me ask a, a odd question. Um, if you were sitting in a room talking to a bunch of young people, young uh, women and men in grade, grade 12, who are contemplating the future of work in the post-jobs economy, what do you tell them? I actually have this discussion, actually, fairly often. I tell people that they should be prepared to be in and out of the labor force. Uh, Not necessarily in and out of the labor force, but in and out of jobs. And I think they need a lot of skills to take care of themselves. I talk about empowering individuals. You know, in the book, Work is Not a Place, I think individuals have uh, a lot to do to prepare themselves for that reality. So they need to have their finances in order. They need to start saving early. They need to figure that it won't be a corporation that's going to take care of them. I think people need to think about multiple income streams over a lifetime. Time. You know, the side hustle is already a big thing with the millennial generation, with uh, Gen Z, which is following them. They are selling things on Etsy. They're playing in bands. They're taking on contract work. They're selling their skills on Fiverr. They're not always thrilled about doing this. And I think there's legitimate concerns that they're going to be Uberized, as some people say, for their lifetimes. But I think you need to take advantage of what's available and say, look, I can't just depend on one income stream. I have to figure that over my life, there's going to be disruptions to how I work and I want to try different things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I think just having one job and one employer and one source of income that you're dependent on hasn't tended to work for other generations either. It causes a lot of angst when sometimes it doesn't work out. Your your comments actually remind me of the fact that what you're describing is kind of a 19th century working class economy brought forward into the professional class in the 21st century. The idea of multiple streams of sort of periods of time without work and sort of down times and boom times uh, in, in the same cycle. It, it seems to me that one of the big changes is the fact that this is affecting uh, careers and professions that we thought were 
very secure and very stable. Yeah, it's absolutely true that we don't have what we used to have. It's interesting you mentioned history, though, Ken, because the norm was not for people to have one job. If we go back, you know, pre-industrial revolution, we had farming. Uh, we had farming for a long time. That was just working to live. Then we had people having trades, perhaps specializing. And then eventually we had factories, and it made sense for people to be in one place. But we had many centuries of, you know, basically working from home for good or bad, cottage industries, multiple clients. Um, I'm not saying it made people rich or made them happy, but that was the reality. This reality we've had of jobs has only gone on for a couple hundred years at most. So it's not surprising to me that we're changing it up. Now, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, what people's lives will look like and whether it's a good idea to have work in one place. There's some fascinating research by the Bank of England that was out lately that showed People who change jobs a lot end up making more than people who stay in one place. They call this twisters and stickers. If you're a sticker, you're somebody who stays in a job for a long period of time, you are not going to end up making as much as if you're somebody who's willing to take risk. And what they found is that this willingness to take risk has started to pay much more in terms of dividends than was true in the past. It used to be companies would pay the people who stuck around just to make sure they didn't leave. These days, they don't seem to do that as much. So we already have this economy where you get rewarded by not being the person who stays in one job. So in your book, you make it really clear that this is a reality now, that you're not talking about the post-jobs economy of 2030 and 2050. You're talking about the economy and the workforce of 2018. So why is this issue not getting more attention? Yeah, it's interesting because I guess it's harder to get your mind around. If you're a politician, you're talking about policies. You like to count up jobs. You like to talk about the factory that just opened and is employing this many people because it's nice, it's neat, it does show you know success. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not arguing that jobs are ever going to go away or that this is not going to be a way of life for a lot of people. I'm just saying that we have kind of opened this Pandora's box and there's just not one thing. I often use the analogy of the household. You know, it used to be if you were Coca-Cola and you were selling a product, you only had to understand one household. And that was the family with kids and mom and dad. Now you have to understand a lot of different households if you're selling a product. And it's the same thing with the world of work. We have to understand a lot of different things. And I think we're just coming to that realization in policy terms. Um, we talk a lot about parental leave, and I think that's great. And the Canadian government has made some initiatives there. But what about all the workers who don't get any parental leave because they don't have jobs per se and they don't qualify? When are we going to have that conversation? So let's pick up on that theme. Uh, what do you think of the current approaches that government and, and business organizations are taking to the question of the future of work? I think we're so early in this process. I think so much attention goes to things like Uber and is it right that you know taxis are having legislation change so that they don't have a monopoly anymore and can we protect what was there? Uh, I think that gets away from the major point, which is that everything is changing. Uh, I think the majority of people actually like that they have ride share as an alternative perhaps to taxis. So you can try and slap on legislation, but you're kind of going against what people want and that makes it very difficult to enforce. 
I don't think this is just about platforms. And I think a lot of legislation, and I'm talking more about European legislation, honestly, because here in Canada and in the United States, we haven't really gotten that far on this issue. But where there's been attention on it, it's been about the platform economy and is this taking away jobs? And should we put in more legislation? And again, I think that's just the very beginning of the discussion. We should be talking about savings plans. We should be talking about income security. We should be talking about social protections, perhaps, for workers who are not in traditional employment. Because a lot of the things employers did, we are not seeing employers do anymore. Tell me whether you're optimistic about the future or pessimistic. I, when I was reading the book, there were times when I thought, boy, this is really exciting and dynamic, and I can see how people can get really engaged. And then a little while later, I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of dislocation here and a lot of uncertainty. Where do you come down on the optimism scale? I am optimistic. I think it's better. I think there is some security in having a job, and I hope that people will always be able to pick that if they want. But I think it's great that the world has opened up for so many people that if you have a product that you think can sell, you can sit wherever you live in Ottawa or Toronto or Vancouver or Phoenix, Arizona or whatever, uh, figure out how to get it manufactured in China because you could do that from your laptop then sell it over Amazon and potentially find a market or potentially fail. But you have the opportunity. You didn't have it before. If you're a graphic designer, you can find a market using Fiverr or a lot of uh, online um, platforms, Upwork, whatever, and maybe find a gigantic market you would never have found before. Yes, there's risk that somebody else can find your market, but the opportunities are definitely there. You know, we're the book, if you found it pessimistic in places, uh, I think I was trying to just be sensitive to the fact that not everyone is going to benefit from this in the short term. We do need to take note of the fact that we will have transactions costs in the short term, and we need to have policy around that. So there is reasons to be cautious, uh, but I'm trying not to be pessimistic about this or sound pessimistic about this, because I think this is... Uh, an economic, I think this is an economic transition that will ultimately be a good thing. So just an odd question, if you don't mind, um, and reflecting sort of a personal interest in rural and small town Canada, do you see the, the new forms of work and the future of work generally to be a salvation for rural and small town areas? Or will this actually only accelerate the move toward a city state economy, where of course, if you're in Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary, you have many more potential employers than you do if you're in Capas uh, Casing or in Brandon, Manitoba. You know what I'd like to see, Ken? I would like to see telecommuting. And we had that discussion, what was it, 10, 20 years ago, people got excited. Then it kind of went away because companies like to see where people are. They feel they can't manage them as well. I don't know that that's helping us that much. It's great that cities are doing well, but the congestion on highways is not a great thing. The pollution, the environmental damage is not a great thing. The stress of getting to your job in a city is not a great thing. It would be really nice if more companies opened up to the idea that you could sit in Brandon, Manitoba and do the same job for them. There are ways to make people part of a team when they're not there. There are examples in the book about how people make this work. Um, one company told me that they sometimes have virtual parties. It was a virtual baby shower where people were all over the United States, but they all logged in and they all saw each other and the uh, employee who was having the baby opened the presents and they felt like they were together. Uh, you have to work hard to make that happen if you're not 
together as a team. But technology exists, and I think we need to possibly give it a chance. I mean, if you look at real estate prices around cities, it's to a point where people are talking about it being a crisis. I don't know if it's a crisis, but it would be great if we let people live different places and perhaps take advantage of the fact that you don't have to be in one place to do a job. Now, Vermont in the uh, the U.S. is uh, really ahead on this. They are actually offering workers $10,000 if they have a job somewhere else with a tech company and they want to sit in Vermont and do it. They'll say, look, we'll give you $10,000 to set up shop here and get your paycheck from someplace else. So maybe we, we need to open our minds. Well, listen, Linda, this is an absolutely fabulous conversation. It's not going to be the last one we have on this. Uh, your book makes it absolutely clear that uh, the future of work is going to be a very active and very important place, uh, not just for the people involved in the companies, but for the country as a whole, for society in general, and for the formulation of effective government policies that can actually push us in the right direction. Linda Nazareth is the author of Work is Not a Place, Our Lives and Our Organizations in the Post-Jobs Economy. Thank you very much for being with us today. This is Ken Coates of the McDonnell-Lurie Institute. Thank you for listening to Pod Bless Canada. Take care. Bye. Thanks to both of you. 